Imagine you have spent a lifetime with that subtle feeling that you just have to keep proving yourself. Maybe you can't quite put your finger on where that sense of being out of step comes from. When you look back on your life, you aren't 100% sure why you've made many of the decisions you have, and now you're determined to do it right. The pressure of that feeling can be absolutely crushing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, where we connect the dots in search for more balanced mental health. We need to make the invisible things visible. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, where we are connecting the dots in search for more balanced mental health. We are making the invisible things visible. In today's episode, I have the wonderful privilege of sitting with Mindy Bellata, registered psychotherapist from the Niagara region in Ontario, Canada. Mindy practices from the perspective that people have a wired-in capacity to heal and grow. Her clinical interests are in childhood attachment trauma and in helping people identify and work with their defenses, particularly defenses like perfectionism and their harsh inner critic. She is a Daring Way facilitator trained in Brene Brown's body of research, focusing on building courage, shame resilience, and uncovering the power of vulnerability. She is also trained as an AEDP therapist, and that stands for Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. It's a therapy modality that feels like home to her. It prioritizes building safe, empathetic relationships, essentially undoing aloneness in therapy, which allows for the capacity to build healthy relationships outside of the therapeutic relationship, including the relationship we have with ourselves. A little bit about Mindy outside of her role as a therapist. She is married with two young adult children and has a love for long distance running. Uh, She has completed 13 marathons, I will have you know. (laughs) She's often found with runners on her feet um, and has a passion for interior design and making spaces feel comfortable and warm. And she also has a near obsessive connection to all things knitting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you so much for making the time to come be with me today, Mindy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm honored that you chose me to talk about this topic. It's really something that's near and dear to me. I, so for everyone that's listening, Mindy is my guru when it comes to talking about perfectionism and self-compassion. And I'm going to weave into our conversation today the ways those show up with adults who have ADHD. And it seems like two weird things to go together, perfectionism and ADHD, but they most certainly do a lot. So in talking about that, Mindy, do you want to set us up with a bit of a definition about like, what is perfectionism like, and how do you know if you have it? Yeah, well, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm trained in in Brene's work. Um, So I'm a Daring Way facilitator. And she's, she, you talked about me being your guru. She's my guru. She's my mentor when it comes to all things, you know, perfectionism, vulnerability. And she has a, what she does is when she, um, looks at definite, you know, definitions in the dictionary, and it doesn't meet with her data. Um, and all of her the research that she's done, she she 
um, reworks the definition. So she reworked a definition of perfectionism and I'll just read it for you because she does a really good job of just succinctly um, putting it uh, in uh, wonderful terms. Um, so perfectionism is the self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels the thought, if I look perfect, live perfectly, work perfectly and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Mm. So there's a lot to unpack there. I guess that's what we're here to do, right? Yeah. There but is. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that sums it up for me and actually really weaves in nicely with uh, the work that I do with, with people every day. Um, as a as an AADP therapist, we look very closely at, um, at the feelings that we try to avoid, right? Yeah, when we're um, in pain, all the things we do to not be in pain emotionally. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So even with that recognition, right, I have so much compassion when perfectionism shows up uh, in, in my office. So something that I that I really um, really like to work with with people and it shows up so frequently. Yeah. Do you, do you think perfectionism is like a mental health issue? Um, that's a good question. I think it, it can be in terms of like getting in the way of us being able to go about our day-to-day -day lives. It can, it can certainly contribute to, to feelings of low mood and, um, you know, and anxiety, absolutely. So I don't know that I would, yeah, label it a, a mental health, um, but it, it certainly is, can be connected. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the one thing that I've really learned working with adults with ADHD is that um, everything is okay until it makes us not functional. Yes. So yes. focusing on like the functionality, like where is this thing showing up in your life that's tying your shoelaces together? you know, and you, you can't do the things you want to do and live the life you want to live and feel the way you want to feel because you're, you're using these coping mechanisms that might've made sense at some point along the way in your life. And now as an adult, it's not serving you. And then as you said, unpacking and untangling this like giant ball of yarn, sometimes it feels like as to, holy geez, how do we get here? And then how do I work my way back to a place of um, a little bit more freedom connecting to myself, to your point with the AEP lens. And, you know, when, when you're a late diagnosed adult in particular, and, you know, you've spent your whole life kind of receiving messages, whether they're explicit or implicit, that you're not measuring up, that you're not meeting the expectation. Oh, we know you can do better. Just, you know, you've got to apply yourself or she's got so much potential or if only she would X, Y, Z, she could be, you know, ABC. And those, these, these messages start to create this inner dialogue that I, there's something else I got to be doing. And I don't know what it is. No one's really telling me, but it's something. And so then you're on this constant search to improve. I'm making air quotes. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Some vague abstract thing in your life that geez, once you get there, everything's going to be fine. Right. Right. Yeah. But that, that goal, right. It just keeps moving, right. We can, and we, we never seem to really reach that, the top, you know, I'm completely agreeing with everything that you're saying. And it really, you know, spoke to me when you, when you talked about, yeah, that, um, 
how it how it just kind of it's just takes over right it takes over and um makes it really difficult to to do the day-to-day -day tasks yeah. absolutely because consuming totally and we're triggered by whatever we're triggered by yeah. and so then it just becomes a way of living like we wake up and every day it's this relentless pursuit to somehow be better than the day before without ever kind of wondering like why why are we doing that like and what what does yeah. it mean like is this what our life is right yeah it's, and it's interesting when I work with people it's often something that I see but they don't necessarily see yeah because we can see people's that. pain 100%. So when you can bear witness and you slow down and, and we have this ability to um, see how much harder things are than they need to be and kind of try and really understand with someone what their experience of that is, then, I mean, it's, it's when you reflect that back, what you see, it can be quite powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Because I guess by definition, when we're trying to protect ourselves, it's this instinctive, automatic, involuntary nervous system thing that's happening that by definition doesn't really include higher thinking. Yeah, that's not cognitive, right? Yeah, right. yeah. And I think, I think what often happens or what often people believe about perfectionism is that it means being perfect. So I often get that, oh no, I'm not, I don't, I, that's not me. I don't, I'm not, I don't have perfectionism at all because I'm nowhere near perfect. Um, and when I kind of say, well, it's, it's, it's more about that fear, that fear of failing, yeah. right? that needing to strive right. and, and that worry about what other people think, right? I think that's when they start to go, oh yeah. Or I know that's what they do. That's when they say, okay, yeah, maybe this is something that I need to look a little, little closer at. I, and I think one other thing I kind of thought about when, when you've got, when you're an adult with ADHD, or I'd say even a teenager with ADHD, there's this kind of feeling like, oh, well, if, if I'm not supposed to be perfectionistic, that means I'm going to take my foot off the gas pedal. Mm -hmm. And then, and then there's this fear of like, I was only keeping my head above water as it was. So if I, you know, people are telling me I shouldn't, you know, be pushing myself that way, then I take my foot off the gas, then I'll be even less productive than I was before. Right. And it's like the iceberg or, you know, Fred Flintstone, I'm, I'm dating myself now with like his little feet running. There's no engine. And it's like all, the, all this, like, you know, energy to just keep up, but nobody else can see on the outside what's going on on the inside. And it's exhausting. Yeah. Again, that's where like I have, you know, so much compassion for them. And I, I think, you know, a big part of, of, of what I do and the work that I do um, is helping them, you know, recognize that too. Right. And, and if they can see it from me first, it's often this recognition, right. There's often a lot of emotion when I say, oh my gosh, I feel I can, I can see how difficult this is for you and just relate to them in that way. That's when we can see emotion and they can recognize, oh my gosh, yeah, this is something that's really plaguing me. Mm -hmm. Is there like a particular like way you approach, so you've identified perfectionism with somebody, which you can have outside of ADHD. I mean, to be clear for everybody listening, I mean, that's, it's just, it just happens to be an association in my world that way, but it doesn't. It makes a lot of sense. So yeah, the way that you describe that, because ADHD isn't something that I, that I specialize. It's certainly something that I see. Um, and you've helped me recognize that in many clients. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I can definitely see the, the way that you're making those connections. And again, just that the, my compassion goes out to, to people that are, yeah, the, like the shoelaces uh, tied together was uh, a, an interesting analogy. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, I, I don't, I don't know. Like I kind of think about this and I'm pretty quick to say, I don't think I'm a perfectionist um, because I, because I'm not super hundred percent vested in other people's perception of what I'm doing, as long as I know I'm okay with it. But I think I've like, I've come to that, not from some great Zen place. I've come to that from probably being hurt a lot in the past and like recognizing quite painfully that I can't focus on that as an outcome. Right. And I'm okay to let things go. I'm okay to, to be more realistic about what's the amount of effort I should put into something based on what, what I hope to get out of it. And focusing on the journey part rather than the outcome. Um, but that being said, I don't know. I think I, I think I just, I'm drawn to exploring it more because in trying to apply self-compassion, it can be hard. And I wonder like, well, if that antidote is hard in my mind, I'm calling it the antidote. I wonder why that is. And maybe there's more there. I mean, it's always just so interesting. So is there a particular way that, that you, kind of generally approach it and I know you tailor and adapt everything you're doing but like how do you how do you start to break perfectionism down with somebody who maybe isn't convinced that it's a problem yeah yeah and I I don't know that I necessarily like um hone in on the 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 the, the label if they're not to seeing it what what is important is they recognize that it is getting in the way or there, that that there is some shame here that's that's driving it right Brene again talks I bring up her often right your body of work but she talks about um perfectionism being a shield of protection right but it's very much you know if if perfectionism is driving um shame is riding shotgun and fear is in the back seat right so even if we don't focus on the perfectionism and we recognize there's shame here right there's some, some feelings of not good enough that are driving. Lots um, not good enough in ADHD life. Developing self-compassion can be something that can be really helpful for um, many defenses, right? Whether it be perfectionism or, um, yeah, having that, that harsh inner critic or, you know, so many things that get in the way that are driven by shame. Yeah. Right. Well, and and when you just like you're making me think of something that's so important in the place where when we do psychotherapy and we talk about it, like adapting it for an ADHD brained person. So if you're seeing a therapist that isn't ADHD trained and you've got ADHD, it, it doesn't mean all for naught because, you know, this part of the important work can be done regardless of that, because when there's lots of things to be ashamed of, unpacking that and bringing light to that. I think Brene says that too, right? Where light shines, their shame starts to dissipate, something along those lines. Because that's driving an emotional response. Usually it's probably avoidance, <laughs> you know, doom scrolling on Twitter, all of the things we do to not feel our feelings. And then when we do that, we're out of our body, out of our sense of ourselves and what we need to do, that actually impacts our executive function, which if it's already on shaky ground, if we've got ADHD, you know, if it's the evening and there's no meds on board or there's more stressors in our lives, so we're a little more symptomatic than usual, then, you know, then we can't honor 
the the commitments we've made to ourselves to show up for ourselves and for our family. So it's like sometimes we talk a lot about like oh we've got to work on time management and stuff and quite literally we do, but before all that stuff comes is emotional self management. And and I think emotional self management can be really derailed by issues of shame and not good enough and I've got to do it right or why 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 bother if I can't even do it at all and feeling demoralized you know, by how hard things can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, that's something that I always work on with clients is to help them see the, the defenses, whether it be, you know, perfectionism or the other ways that I mentioned that it, that it kind of shows up, that shame kind of is this like protector sort of, right. Is helping them recognize it's, yeah, I think you said this early on too, is like, it's we 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 turn to perfectionism and these other defenses as a way to protect ourselves right and so if if we can give compassion to that right if they see me giving compassion to that i like to help them recognize that for themselves and and i mean in the work that i do we go a little bit i love your your title of your, your therapy practice, because it's so important to me to dig a little bit deeper, right. To, to, to find out where did this start? Right. And, and if you can have some recognition of, of where these, where the shame kind of started, then we can give a lot of compassion and we can say things like, gosh, you needed that at one time, right? Maybe things weren't so great in the household that you grew up in. And the only way that you were able to feel good enough as if you, you know, brought home the A's um, and that kind of thing. And then they can, you know, turn towards that defense, right? And recognize, yeah, it served me, it helped me. I know, or when it shows up for, for them, right? The, the needing to be, you know, doing everything right, um, to, to be able to turn towards it rather than get upset with it and, and you know, be able to say, you know, I get that you're here. I know you're trying to help me, right? I don't, maybe I don't need you so much anymore. Those kinds of, of things we can work on. Yeah. Why, why is self-compassion so hard? There's, there's, you know, some of Kristen Neff's work is important to look at when we answer that question, right? There's, she's done a lot of research in this area, has kind of dedicated her career to it. And there's this belief that if we're kind to ourselves, that we're not going to be motivated to do things. So that can be one of the ways uh, that we, you know, kind of look at self-compassion or compassion um, as something uh, I don't, I don't necessarily need to do that because it's just going to make me unmotivated. It's going to make me lazy. It's, it's self-pity if I give myself. So there's these like myths about self-compassion that I think are important to debunk. Yeah. You know what you just totally made me think of though, in saying that is that like, we can be really rigid about the coping mechanism. We finally found that worked, even if it's not serving us now. Right. So a lot of times people with ADHD as adults, will seem like they have these rigid sets of rules about how things need to be in their lives. And on the outside, it could look a little bit like, you know, they could be a bit obsessive or, you know, compulsive about certain things, but it's not that. It's actually that if they don't, you know, set something up a certain way because it's happened in the past that 
that they forget because of their spotty working memory or their executive function deficits that, that haven't been really identified yet as such, that things will fall apart. So then they become really rigid about that. And then, you know, you, you get married and have kids and then you inflict your rigid standards on everybody else thinking that, well, this is, this is how I've become adulting and getting things done. Therefore, this must be what other people need to do without recognizing that, oh, wait a minute, like maybe we need to examine actually how that all started in the first place. And I wonder if the fear of self-compassion um, can be a little bit hard because that asks you to challenge mm -hmm. rigid beliefs. You know, in psychotherapy, we can we can do even some experiential work with that, right? In terms of what does it feel like when when I give you some compassion, right? Oh. It, it, you know, for those of you listening, Mindy, Mindy will do that sometimes when we're in a peer supervision or consultation together, and I'm just like, oh, she got me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. got and then me. if you can hone in on what that does inside of you. Yeah. Right. And you can recognize the warmth that's there, you know, whatever it feels like inside, you can start to recognize, okay, maybe there's something to this, right. Maybe, maybe it is okay. If I give myself some kindness. Yeah. Like the warmth, I do have warmth rising up in my chest. Like, even as you just said that, not even directly to me, but describing it to me. So it's that powerful. And then, you know, when that happens, then are my nervous systems regulating and I'm getting calmer and feeling more safe. And then my higher thinking can come back on. So in fact, having some self-compassion does actually fuel my executive function and allow me to do the things I need to do to take care of myself so that I can show up in my life tomorrow morning when I wake up. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty yeah, but it is common for people to to not let self-compassion be something that they want to buy into, right? It, it is a common thing to to like a defense again, right? To uh, to work with in therapy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Are there like any specific activities you do? Like, uh, you know, if any of my people that I've worked with before listening in, they might recognize Mindy's voice because one thing that I do, Mindy, is and you know I do this, but I share your self-compassion meditation and I often have assigned it as homework yeah and and kind of you know I'm I like of course in adapting I like to figure out exactly with somebody I'm working with for that person when's going to be the best moment to listen to this for the first time and sometimes it's often like throw your earbuds in like it, I want this to be like maybe a before part of your bedtime ritual and just laying down low lights softness all those warm, cozy things and have a listen. And then your voice filters in and you walk people through that rain meditation. And I think it's, it can be really hard for people the first time, mm -hmm. like Absolutely. maybe not even get through it. It's just like what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And, and it can be really hard. And I think when you're, when you're just driving and constantly going and that, you know, that pro being propelled forward, that ADHD piece, that constant internalized hyperactivity, it's hard to slow down and, and be with yourself. And so that, that's a cool exercise. I think that seems pretty simple because then we, we take it up and examine kind of the things that came up for people while they were listening to it. Mm 
Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to ask them like, what did that, what did that feel like? Right. What did that feel like in your body when you did that? And, and, you know, that might help them recognize, yeah, but maybe this is important, right? Maybe this is something that I can tap into a little bit more frequently. Um, there are, I often refer um, clients that I work with um, or people that I speak to that are interested in learning about self-compassion to Kristen Knapp's website. So it's, it's selfcompassion.org. Uh, she has several exercises and several of her own meditations on there that can be helpful. Uh, something I often use in my practice, uh, along with like helping clients um, to turn towards themselves is to say, what would you say to a friend? right? That, that's often a way that, that can be really helpful in the awareness that they're not being compassionate to themselves, right? So being able to, um, so if they're struggling with something and, and then hard on themselves about it, so let's, let's say it's perfectionism, right? Oh my gosh, I, 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 I can't believe that I got a C on that test. Um, you know, those kinds of things that happen, being able to and, and you recognize them being so, so hard on themselves or saying such harsh things to themselves and uh, the things they say out loud are probably not as they're a little bit filtered, right? So the inner dialogue is important to pay attention to, right? And if- uh, Bringing awareness to that. What's that? Bringing awareness to that even. Bringing awareness to that. I mean, that's a big component of, of self-compassion too, is the mindful awareness. Um, but then being able to even simply ask the question like, well, what would you, what would you say to a, to a friend if they came to you with, with this, if they were being so harsh towards themselves for, for getting a C on a test, right. And they're right away able to say, oh my gosh, like I, I totally say, you know, you know, you'll, 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 it's okay. I've been there, right. Your heart goes out to them. You're, you're able to help them uh, rec recognize that it's not, not, not the end of the world. Right. Yeah. You're making me think like also too of like really like boundary work in the sense that some people apply those standards only to themselves and they they beat themselves up inside and, and it's never voice. It's this internal secret dialogue that goes on and, and they don't necessarily share that with other people. And the idea of saying the same things to someone else kind of horrifies them. And then kind of at the other end of the continuum are sometimes people who not only say those things to themselves, but they also think everyone else should be meeting that standard. And both can be really damaging to your relationships because on the one end, you're, you're too rigid, maybe with boundaries. And on the other hand, maybe we're being too porous with boundaries. And there's, there's just this no sense of where I end and everyone else begins. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's often goes hand in hand with people who show up in my office that, you know, put this pressure on themselves to be to be perfect. The boundaries are really difficult, right? Because they're always worried about what the other person is thinking. And yeah, so for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I heard this great thing. Well, I read it, I guess, on Instagram years ago. Like I want to say like five years ago from a therapist um, that is out in California and oh I'm blanking on her name right now um, I think her last name is Sky Tay Sky I will look it up and I will I will I'll reference it but she's the first person who wrote emotions are data 
not directives. And that informs that informs so much of how I started to understand, like, you know, just because we feel something, just because we're afraid someone's going to judge us or be disappointed in us or have some opinion or feeling about their perception about whether or not we've missed the mark. That's interesting information. It's data. That doesn't necessarily need mean we need to do something about it. And honoring that place where we end and someone else begins. So someone can be upset with me or disappointed in, in me and I can take that into consideration, think about it, reflect on it and, and decide whether I want that to influence what I do moving forward. It doesn't immediately mean that because they're disappointed, boom, I must go <gasps> fix that. And yeah, now, yeah, I think that's, that's important. Someone else is susu, right? <laughs> the the fear is important to pay attention to, right? It's, it's, it's an emotion. It's, it's, it's there to tell you something, right? Because I think the fear is there and I think it's important. That's information to you, right? That's, that's, you know, it's coming from somewhere. Maybe we need to look at that closer, recognize where we feel that inside to hone in on maybe it's not fear, right? Maybe it's, it's something else, but yeah. Yeah. yeah just cause we're afraid, like we can, we still have to do that. Well, we're afraid because like it matches a pattern of something that rightfully made us afraid at one point. If it's 25 years later, the same pattern showing up of behavior in other people will trigger the same fear response completely. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Absolutely. It, yeah, but, but do I actually need to be afraid? Because sometimes like I think we worry a lot about like, do I need to like uncover the inciting incident in my childhood that started this? And I'm like, well, maybe we'll get there. But Let's, we don't need to get hung up on that yet, because I think actually the most important part is recognizing the pattern, right? So we can we can have a working hypothesis, maybe. Like I like to do this sometimes with people. Like let's just chew on this one for a bit. Like so, say this is our, our hypothesis. Say, you know, this fear of that comes up when this kind of thing happens in your life matches a pattern of like this thing that happened when we were eight in grade three, third grade, and. It's just enough to know that our nervous system, our prehistoric, like my little cave woman's like, oh, ding, 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 pattern recognition, whoop, ignite the response. I lean into fight, not flight. So that what that looks like is irritation and anger and being short and kind of like ready to move. Like, all right, what are we gonna do? What's my next move, right? And then, and then what I've learned over time and you know, through the work that I do and working with people is like, that's my signal. When that, that energy comes up in my nervous system, sometimes it can be good and exciting. Like I'm at the top of a ski hill <laughs> about to go down. And as someone who only learned how to ski two years ago, you know, like that's, that's quite an adrenaline rush for me. Um, <clears throat> but getting to that place where I'm kind of like, oh, oh, I'm feeling that feeling. So that feeling is my signal to be like, oh, do I actually need to be afraid right now? Right, right. Yes, yes, absolutely. You're speaking maybe. my language. This maybe is not. Yeah, absolutely. How I uh, work with people too. And, and that's why the somatic is so important, right? To recognize, okay, what is, what's going on inside of me, right? And, and does, when does this show up, right? And somatic meaning up. like just your body, like physical sensations. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, so fascinating. I, the thing that I love about the, the, involving your body and the body work when we kind of get out of the cognitive a little bit like our thinking our higher thinking brain is that like you know it doesn't matter your 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 sex your gender your culture your religion the color of your skin what country you live in your socioeconomic status we all have the same operating system on the inside 
Yes, it's the common humanity, right? Common humanity, the way our yeah. nervous system operates, the way yeah. the human body, the way us as mammals just continue to keep on keeping on that survival drive that that's programmed into our DNA. And so kind of when we understand that there's like a biological rationality to all the weird and quirky and kooky things that we do, then it becomes, I think that helps remove stigma too. Absolutely. It does. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. No, I love that. that yeah, when, you, when you talked about that compassion that we feel for people who feel so like weighed down by what's going on with them. And you kind of, you're like, well, it makes sense that you're experiencing this because look at all this stuff that you just said happened in your life. You're just having a, a mammal's biological response to something bananas. So how do we make life less bananas for you right now, <laughs> right? Like, you know, and, and my, my mammal nervous system would have done the same thing, which is why I get it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think when you ask that question, what would you say to a friend, right? That taps into your compassion for others and shows you that you have, you know, the capacity to do that for yourself too. And that, that opens up that, yeah, that common humanity, right. Which is an important component of, of self-compassion, right. So self-compassion in, in, um, Kristen Neff's research is to, you know, be mindful, have the awareness um, that you're not being compassionate to self, perhaps, right? And noticing like the, the self-critical voice that might be there. And also recognizing, you know, you're not you're not alone in it, right? We're, we all experience suffering, right? And and so being able to be mindful of that when you're uh, being self-critical, right, is is helpful. And then turning to, yeah, what would you say to a friend? Maybe I can start to say some of those, those things to myself as well. So that in combination with the felt sense and the, the being able to, you know, turn towards the protectiveness that you once needed um, is, is something that, I don't know, that's, that's kind of packaging it up for me. That's, that's, that's of yeah. And, and like, you know, I think the, the other thing I hear you saying is that it's, it's so important to do this in connection to other people in community and recognizing our interdependence. So that piece that, you know, our nervous systems, we can soothe ourselves, but they'll, it'll always prefer receiving soothing with somebody else and with people. Yeah. There's safety in numbers. It's like, you know, like 200 million years ago when the cave people went out to hunt, they did it in groups and packs. And there's safety in numbers, you know, and so that programming still very much alive in our DNA today. Just, just that's that's it. That's what we're here to do is to support each other and be together. And when yeah. we feel that sense of shame, we become isolated. No wonder it's depressing. Absolutely, yeah. And when we can, when we can start to share some of the feelings of shame, which often happens in therapy, which you know could be the first time someone's sharing something they feel shame around, when you undo that aloneness with them, right, that shame starts to, um, yeah, dissipate, and and that's when you can um, get underneath the defenses and help. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I kind of have like two questions left for you. So one is like. Is there an objective way to say, say I'm an adult who's coming and I'm starting to unpack and work on this stuff for the first time. Mm -hmm. How long is it going to take? Oh, <laughs> which is a common thing for someone that 
Yeah. Is perfectionism? Yeah, I think okay, inquiring right. minds want to know. <laughs> right. You want me to answer that? Yeah. What do you think? How long is it going to take? I so mean, yeah. yeah. How would I answer? Yeah. I would say, oh my gosh, that's, you know, let's slow down a little bit. Right. And let's just focus on right here and right now and today. And we'll see where we can go from there. Um, I, I, I don't work in a manualized way. Um, so I, it's very individual and I want them to feel like I'm here for them and to, I, I, I think people do come in with that sometimes, but they let go of it, right. Once they recognize, okay, what therapy is and, um, yeah, not so much about, you know, going through this, the steps, right. It's, it's not about that everybody has a different journey and their journey therapy is going to be different to you. Right. And, and I think as we go through different stages of life and we have different experiences in our life, we come to new understandings about ourselves, And then this information means something different. Yes. We step yes. along the way. So it can, the goal evolves as we evolve. I yes. think it's kind of maybe. Yes. Also how yeah. I often people come in when they're in crisis, right? Yeah. And often the really important work is done once we've kind of resolved you know, the crisis a little bit. Resolved the crisis. We're able to put the crisis maybe over here a little bit. And then we recognize the patterns, like you said earlier, right? And where some of that comes from and dig a little bit deeper. <laughs> dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then the last kind of question that I would like to ask you, maybe like a personal reflection for yourself, like as you you know, as an adult, as becoming a therapist and working with people, being a woman in the world, um, how has like the, like the journey, I guess, to be more self-compassionate or to combat perfectionism, like how, how has that been for you? And are there things you would tell your younger self maybe? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good question. Um, I definitely do identify as some as a recovering perfectionist I would say it's 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 a work in progress for sure it's it's interesting because when I uh, was introduced to self-compassion I was in my practicum and struggling right struggling um, myself with the perfectionism you know for the first time being in front of you know a client you know how scary you know that there's almost nothing scarier right um, so self-compassion uh, just the, the research that I was taking in was really helpful for me at the time. It really, uh, it was something that my supervisor commended that, you know, I might want to do a little bit of research in, but I, I grabbed onto it, I think, because it just really resonated with me as something that I don't do for myself. Um, and then, yeah, just to talk a little bit about my journey, I think when I did some specific uh, therapy with an ADP therapist, um, that's when I was able to, to deepen my um, connection to myself and, and be more self-compassionate. And it, just like I was saying earlier, being able to, and you said it too, like being able to relate to my younger self, right? Because this is, this is a little bit of like, yeah, certainly for me anyways, my perfectionism came from um, some experiences that I had when I was younger. And to be able to recognize that and, and turn towards that with, with compassion, right? So having the, that's when I was able to really um, embrace it 
further, right? So I had the theory, I had the, the uh, you know, the, the awareness of what the components of self-compassion are, but it wasn't really able to, to deepen it for myself until I did some important inner work. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that because I think it's going to be really nice for, for other people to hear that, right? Um, you know, what it was like for you type of piece. And, and I think there, there is that piece of sometimes you're ready when you're ready. And it can be hard to force that process. And, you know, it can be, you know, I say sometimes as a late diagnosed ADHD, or I don't know if anyone tried to point this out to me in my 20s, if that would have gone well. You know, I just wasn't in a place where I was interested in, in that kind of feedback or in examining things at that level. I mean, or would I have been? I don't know. I mean, you can't really go back and rewrite history. It was what it was. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that I figured it out when I did. Um, cause you know, no, I think you make a really good point, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cause, cause we can beat ourselves up a lot saying like, oh my gosh, I should have figured this out. I should have, I should have, I should have, you know, like uh -huh. that we're shitting all over ourselves like mm -hmm. all the time, which I don't know if that's falls more in the perfectionistic camp or just being, and that, that can be working in the world. therapy too, right? To, that's a mourning the self, right? Mourning what you didn't have, what you know now that you could have, you know, doing some work with that is some work that I've had to do for sure. Um, and work that I do with my clients as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, this fun. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's anything else like we we should mention about it that we haven't really kind of touched on because I think we covered a lot, but I think so. Like I, I just in terms of like resources, I did mention that selfcompassion.org. Maybe you can include that in your yep. show notes. There's I some will. good little um, exercises that she recommends in there. Um, at Brene Brown's work too. She has uh, a really um, nice um book called The Gifts of Imperfection, where she looks at the different guideposts of being a wholehearted person. That one's there's really there's worksheets that you can download for free from her website that go with that book. Yeah, there is. And actually, I'll both, try to to that. both uh, Brene and Kristen Neff have um, some assessments, self-assessments, Okay. So Brene's is on identifying where you fall in those guideposts. Um, so looking at each of the, the different components of what makes a wholehearted person, which is very connected to perfectionism and then, or not being perfect, you know, kind of that recovery of perfectionism. And then Kristen Neff has a, a, an assessment that looks at uh, the, the different areas of self-compassion that I mentioned. So the mindfulness the, the self-kindness and the um, common humanity and, and where you show up on, on those kind of like spectrums. So those are, those are things that people can check out too. Cool. I will make sure that I link all those things. Um, I'm also going to relink Mindy's self-compassion meditation because it's lovely. Thank um, you. I'm gonna give that a go thank in you. the show notes. And um, thank you so much. I really valued your time. I appreciate you coming and, and doing this and guinea picking this with me. Yeah, absolutely. That is all for today, my friends. We hope you enjoyed being a fly on the wall for this fascinating discussion. You can leave me a message through our page on Anchor and I'll do my best to answer your questions on our next show. Check out the show notes for all the relevant links talked about in today's episode. 
If you enjoyed the show, please like and share a screenshot of it in your social media. Tag me at Dig a Little Deeper Therapy so we know that we should keep doing this and it will help it show up in all the places that people listen to podcasts. You can sign up on our website, digalittledeeper.ca, for the Dig Deeper newsletter to hear about new episodes being released or follow us on social media. You can leave a review in Apple Podcasts, let us know what you thought, share it with a friend, follow us online. You can submit voice memos with your questions as well as ideas for future episodes. I will be really happy to get them. Thanks so much and see you next time.